how do we re-internalize things that we have traditionally externalized? And how do we recenter the actual people who are contributing to, impacted by, and involved in the thing that we're doing, whatever form of business or organization or enterprise that is, how do we bring everybody back into the table and like actually hear and operationalize all of those voices? Because that's actually a not just a better societal outcome, but it's a stronger business outcome. Welcome to Ecosystems for Change, where we co-author the playbook on transforming communities by amplifying the impact of changemakers around us. Whether you are an entrepreneur or otherwise changemaker yourself, a citizen who loves their community with a passion and wants to see it thrive, whether you are a mentor, investor, support organization, advisor, philanthropic funder, economic developer, or policymaker, Learn the practical tools and proven tactics of ecosystem builders from all around the world to better support the dreamers, doers, tinkerers, and makers in your community by taking a systems approach to social change. I'm your host, Annika Horn. Today, we're taking a trip to Berkeley, California to talk to my favorite kind of trouble, Kate Sassoon, or as we call her, Sassy. You will soon know why her nickname is so spot on. Sassy has spent most of her life living in or working with co-ops. In our conversation, we talked about the role of stakeholder capitalism and global cooperativism and how both models help us rethink the current system. Sassy also shares what she learned from going undercover in Silicon Valley and what's going on under the hood of cooperatives. Enjoy! Sassy, or as your, I think, official legal name is Kate Sassoon. Thank you so much for being on the show today. I'm so excited I get to talk to you. Mm, me too. This is going to be a fabulous conversation. As someone who has spent very little time on the West Coast of the U.S., if I were to come to Berkeley, California, mm -hmm. where would you take me? Mm. So if you were to arrive... Uh, in my town. And uh, as someone who's a, a bi-coastal American who's lived uh, a lot of different places, uh, but has now called the Bay home for the past 20 years, I would bring you first uh, to my backyard, which I have spent both the pandemic and the years before that cultivating into something like a uh, golf course of glory and uh, multi-use space. So we have a little conference room with a giant whiteboard that's also a dining room space that's also next to a fire pit that also has a native plants border around it and uh, interplanted with a fig tree and some plum trees and uh, really trying to live into its permaculture best life, but is also uh, has a small circle of astroturf in it to be a you know zero zero water waste uh, living slash uh, outdoor carpet uh, where we can roll around and do yoga in the sun and uh, have picnics at any time of year um, so we would kind of land and ground probably have a charcuterie board in my backyard of various local farmers market meats and veg and fruits um, and then we would probably take a walk around my neighborhood you know my neighborhood is a beautiful microcosm of the east bay Uh, in that we have, you know, three blocks down is a mini park, two houses down from that. A uh, mini park is a basically an old vacant lot that got turned into a park by the city of Berkeley. Um, and then two houses down from that is a small daycare co-op where often when you walk down the 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 sidewalk, young kids will roll out on their bikes and say hi and ask you questions about the meaning of life. Um, and then two blocks down from that on Tuesday <laughs> afternoons is a farmer's market where you can walk up and down and, and get a sense of what's seasonal and 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 whose, whose bees are producing what kind of honey. 
And then we would loop back around the block and come back to uh, my corner where we used to host a small free store because the the culture of uh, upcycling and street shopping is very strong in the East Bay. Um, we have a sufficient density that if you don't need something, instead of throwing it in the landfill, you could just put it out on your curb and someone will take it. And we're rebuilding our free store right now to be more uh, sensitive to people's sidewalk accessibility needs, but still keep keep that upcycling tradition in our community. So we would visit that. We might take a look at the community board, which we've put up to collect people's thoughts on how we should rebuild the free store. We might scribble a thought or two to contribute to that. And then we'd probably land back in my backyard uh, for some tea. Uh, that would be that would be my my round one of welcoming you to my home. I can't wait to come and visit you and experience all this firsthand. Now, I did want to ask you about the free store because I found like earlier in 2022, you got into the most charming kind of trouble with your city <laughs> setting up I this did. free store. I did. What happened? Um, you know, uh, as 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 is a tradition, I was raised to make good trouble uh, in the, to quote, the, the late, great John Lewis. Um, I was raised that if you are going to be a citizen in a thing, then you uh, not only step up to follow the rules, you also step up to break them when the, the rules are not following the spirit. And so I have uh, been in jail a couple of times to protest things like, you know, shipping bullets to countries with brown people getting shot for oil and other things like that. And so um, I will acknowledge that my white and economic and able-bodied privilege in that. And so I, you know, try and leverage that and that it is not actually that dangerous for me to take on the city or the civic bureaucracy. I am not going to get stripped of my rights. Uh, and so I'm going to push that. And I pushed that by just simply tacking some boards and uh, and shelves to my fence when the pandemic started just to have a, a place to put upcycled goods. And it rapidly uh, became a kind of community fixture where people would bring canned goods and people would bring baby clothes and uh, people would come by and tidy. Um, and it was a real delight uh, and deliberately an offline place to gather so that we got to meet our neighbors and have physical space where we could share and be in community in, even as that was dangerous. Because, you know, outside, you know, with a bottle of hand sanitizer and a bunch of masks, you can still you know, shop at a, at a, at a tiny thrift store, um, that's free. And, um, unfortunately tragedy of the commons is still a real thing and a diversity of understanding about what is a useful or reusable object is still a thing. And so it would often get very messy. Um, and we you know, tried a bunch of social experiments, like putting up different signs, changing how the, the racks were positioned, recruiting people in the neighborhood to help on a regular schedule to keep it tidy. Um, we had at least one person in the neighborhood who was vehemently opposed to the idea because they believed it made the street really messy and encouraged dumping. And um, somebody, don't know if it was them or don't know if it was just the city doing their rounds, uh, somebody reported us to the city and we were cited for blocking the sidewalk. Mm. And so we were uh, told we needed to remove it in order to not continue to be cited and fined. So we did so, but being me, I went and um, researched all of the city code relevant to that citation and have found a loophole to bring it back. But it just technically must be inside our property lines and there must be nothing blocking the public right of way. So uh, we're rebuilding um, with some donations from the community and um, and the community's really rallied in saying, no, actually, we really want this and we really appreciate it. And even people who are in the neighborhood who work for the city have said, I would happily help you cut the red tape that may arise from this. And so it's become a little bit of a, a little bit of a community moment. And so we're looking forward to rebuilding and then seeing if we get cited again. And if we do, we'll take it to appeal. 
Ladies and gentlemen, you just met Sassy, and now you know why she's on this show. Because she's freaking amazing. And that's, I would have expected nothing less. Wonderful. <laughs> you and I met through our work with Zephyrs Unite. Obviously, mm -hmm. we are idealists, visionaries, hoping that a better and alternative, more equitable future is possible for the world mm -hmm. and society. Mm -hmm. But before we go there, what are you seeing wrong with how we've been trying to solve problems so far. How mm -hmm. did we get into this mess? What's wrong? Oh, so many things. So I want to like cast a line way back into the past and then follow the anchor chain to this moment. The more I have learned and grown as a person and as a, a person who, you know, considers myself a, a person who wants to make good trouble to lift us all up, um, the more I realize that especially in America, present day America, which is uh, for better or worse, um, the model of global capitalism that is currently being exported to the rest of the world in various ways, even, you know, another huge global superpower that is able to set economic norms at scale, which would be China, is really um, choosing to follow culturally and narratively uh, the, the narrative that America has set out and the narrative and the societal patterns and the industry patterns, the, you know, economic system patterns that America is currently living in are really rooted in the fact that we stole this land <laughs> and we stole everything, all the resources that were on it. And that happened because of a giant, you know, global colonialist project, which, then the revolution that took place here was really just an offshoot of that global colonialist project in the hands of different, you know, white landed men. And we have not reckoned with that truth. We have not reconciled with it. So there is, you know, unlike apartheid South Africa, which actually reckoned with some of that history, unlike post-Nazi Germany, where they had a process culturally to reckon with their mistakes as a culture and to like bring forward the beauty and to, to walk a path of healing, we haven't done that. And so there is a cancer at the center of all of our work as a society, which there is incredible beauty in. Like I have lived abroad. I have lived abroad in other countries where they have national health care and other kinds of socialist norms. And I chose to come home because there is beauty here. There is real possibility. There is a, an intense glory that can be achieved in a truly multicultural diasporic melange of humans. Um, you know, we used to call it the melting pot, then we called it the salad bowl. I don't know what we call it today, except for a glorious space of chaotic possibility. And so there is this this kinker at the center. It's a burr in our in our in our ability to design a right culture and a right economic organizational thesis um, that we need to resolve. And so this is why I support politicians here like Barbara Lee, who has been advocating her entire career for a truth and reconciliation process to actually just free up the energy that we are currently spending holding on to the lies and maintaining the lies. So if we were able to free up that energy, what would we even do? So that's the, the anchor in the past. The through line to the current is that, one, we're still allocating a heck of a lot of energy to maintaining the dissonance that is sourced in and rooted in, you know, the native genocide and then the stolen labor of the African-American people who were brought here and all of the other flavors of oppression that has root is rooted in that as we, as we grow forward, because, you know, maintaining that cognitive dissonance means you got to keep maintaining other forms of oppression because they all make sense, quote unquote, big fat ear quotes. Um, but the thing, I think the key thing that we are doing wrong and what that looks like today is that we are still laboring under the myth 
that efficiency and effectiveness and productivity look like one group of people extracting and deploying the labor of another group of people without there being actual ownership or remittance or sharing in that process. So I'm not actually against hierarchy per se, because it can be very efficient. What I'm against is extractive hierarchy and extractive capitalism, which is rooted in the worst manifestations of the post-industrial revolution model. We can do better. In fact, capitalism is an agnostic system. It can be used for the good of everybody. It just currently isn't being used so because it tends to concentrate power. And there are some humans in the world who are really interested in concentrating power in their own pockets. Um, and that is a vulnerability of capitalism, as it is also a vulnerability of democracy. You only need a couple of bad actors in those systems to really hijack the system. Yep. And there's always going to be that with us. So my project is to work against that. But I think that that if I were to pull one lever in society, I would pull the lever of shifting the norm from extractive organizations to mutualistic organizations, because from that, so much would flow. Mm, perfect. Let me follow on here. If we were able to pull that lever mm. and we charted the course into a alternative, better, more mutualistic culture, mm -hmm. how, how would we start solving problems? How would we start talking about wealth and democracy and equity. How would that future look differently if we followed that approach? Well, one of the, there's kind of two seeds that I see that have, we have I've been planting and that are fruit coming to fruition right now around that. And I think that it's um, the two words or the phrases that I'm, I'm hearing or, or would, would use to encapsulate that are stakeholder capitalism and global cooperativism. So I'm hearing the word stakeholder capitalism a lot more recently as an evolution of the idea of, you know, social responsibility or, for, uh, you know, uh, the different ways we've measured or thought about that of the triple bottom line organizations. One of my groundings, uh, aside from my theater degree, is a, a degree in um, ecological sustainability and uh, urban systems. And so you know, we used to think a lot about what is the people, profit and planet organization. And now we're talking about what is stakeholder capitalism and That just is generally a way of saying, how do we re-internalize things that we externalize from those systems, right? How do we actually count all the parts of yep. organizing ourselves instead of just pretending some of them don't exist because we, quote unquote, the people in power, um, don't experience them, quote unquote, directly when they just, they're those people over there who are, you know, not worth talking about or that land over there that we don't need to worry about because it's just land, you know, never mind that it's filtering our water for us. So Stakeholder capitalism is one one lens that I think would be would be a really good one, which is just that from for from my understanding is how do we re-internalize things that we have traditionally externalized and how do we recenter the actual people who are contributing to, impacted by, and involved in the thing that we're doing, whatever form of business or organization or enterprise that is. How do we bring everybody back into the table and like actually hear and operationalize all of those voices? Because that's actually a, not just a better societal outcome, but it's a stronger business outcome if you all operate in the new system. Yes, it is going to look like it has less profit next to Joe Q Extractor, but that's the point. <laughs> so I don't really want to, I'm not interested in having that argument. Um, and then the second thing I mentioned was global cooperativism. And this is uh, luckily literally a movement as old as humanity in a, in a quite literal sense. Um, we've called yeah. it different things over the different <laughs> eons. The modern cooperatives movement is really, you know, rooted in mid 1800s, 
um, articulated by the Rushdale pioneers. Um, but it's the, 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 the premise of cooperativism, really. And I was lucky enough to be raised in situations where I actually experienced this um, in uh, Mara Zepeda, one of the co-founders of Zebras Unite, calls it, she, she, she calls me a native speaker of, <laughs> of this language because uh, I was raised in cooperativist structures and systems and environments. And so for me, the norms of actually, I, I have experienced my entire life the truth that I, in fact, not just matter to what it, my environment is, but I have some ownership over what that environment is, even as a child, you know, because I was raised partially in a daycare cooperative where I saw parents stepping up to own and run the cooperative that sourced all of their needs in childcare. So I was raised by a conglomeration of humans, at least in part, and experienced that, you know, when we wanted to change something, we could. Um, then I lived in housing cooperatives and I worked in worker cooperatives. I've, in fact, only worked for two years out of my entire adult life and I'm now 37. I've only worked in two years in a corporate or extractive hierarchy. I have every other workplace, every other economic arrangement I've had in my adult life, which has have been mostly autonomous. Of course, I live embedded in a network of other supportive humans, but only two years have I spent outside of an ownership situation, which for someone of, of my, you know, mid-millennial post-first economic recession uh, age is not that common. So I have lived into a truth in which I have agency over my economic life. And that is incredibly meaningful. It is just literally life-changing and it has incredible ripple effects such that I, I feel ownership over my citizenhood. I feel like my voice has power and that I understand the consequences of not stepping up into that power and that and what compromise looks like. In a, yeah. in a very lived and breathed fashion and how necessary it is to this great societal project of sharing. Um, and it's very humbling as well as very empowering, which I think is the two sides of that coin. So often I often say to my clients, and this is what I'll just leave this with, democracy doesn't mean you get your way. It means you get your say. And that's oh. really an important distinction because in a really diverse environment where we're attempting to share power and not replicate other you know, past injustices and past oppressions, you got to come together. But coming together doesn't mean the loudest voice or the most dominant voice dominates. <laughs> it means actually coming together. So that's what I would look like. That's a signal to me that the, the next economy, the new economy or the new society is working is that when we say, can't we all just get along? We don't mean actually you over there rocking the boat, shut up. We mean, how are we making it such that everybody in the room is empowered and comes together and that we can actually have productive solutions from that space? <sighs> Wonderful. Everybody, this is why I love working with Sassy, and I'm just <laughs> so fascinated every time I get to talk to you. Sassy, I can't imagine you in a corporate setting. I can't imagine you in Silicon Valley. I can't imagine you in a regular kind of private sector job. How did those two years feel? How did mm. you do in that setting? What did you learn? What did you take away from that experience? Mm. Um, that's a great question. It was a. It was definitely a. Um, let me put on my cultural anthropology hat real hard and like go into uh, the territory of the unknown. So it was very. It was. It was. It was very intentional. Um, and my intentions there were twofold. One, there was just a reality of living as a woman who is a queer woman in an interracial relationship. That is living in the Bay Area, the first or second most expensive place to live in the U.S., depending on the week, yep. um, and who also wanted to form my family through um, adoption and or, 
you know, not having a, a partner that makes gametes that match mine. Um, and so that meant that I needed to quadruple my income uh, in the space of a year or two. And so the place to do that societally right now is the tech space. Um, and I live, you know, within a terrifying but nonetheless apparently reasonable commute of the the, the Silicon Valley. Um, so there was that motivation. And then my second motivation was really to to go learn the language of mm-hmm. the, what we are currently fetishizing slash uplifting as the best entrepreneurial space, um, not to denigrate the incredible innovation that has taken place in this moment, but also to reinscribe that like, you know, for example, even the amazing internet things that had DARPA money under it, my tax dollars paid for those innovations. So just, you know, just saying. Um, but I went to learn, I went to learn the language and I went to learn the frameworks um, and, and how the really good work that a lot of people are doing and trying to do in the world, how that is channeled through the Silicon Valley frame. Mm-hmm. Um, because it's not like those people don't exist there. So I went to go find them and I went to go find what, what does it look like? I felt like I needed to be able to understand experientially that model before I was able to continue deeply critiquing it as a, as a cooperative practitioner. Um, and so it was essentially, you know, undercover work. Um, yeah. And he <laughs> learned a lot. Um, <laughs> I learned a lot. I learned, I learned the power of narrative. I learned, uh, specifically how vast sums of money have their own gravity and mm-hmm. can weave people into their orbits despite their best intentions and trajectories. I learned what grifters look like at a multi-million dollar scale. <laughs> um, and I learned, I learned that a really powerful idea can attract incredibly wonderful people, but um, it can also blind people to what that actually means. For example, when I entered I learned very quickly that the average retention of this company I was working in, which was a, you know, mission driven B Corp trying to really use technology to save the world and solve the UN sustainable development goals and not just get money or not just get real rich. Um, So it was a very mission driven organization It attracted really incredible people in its community and in its staff body for the most part. But the average retention was like, you know, 12 to 18 months (gasps) and, I'm looking at that going, are you kidding me? <laughs> do, you, do you literally know what you're paying? <laughs> like there's, there's a measurable, in fact, quantifiable cost to that kind of a turnover. And, but everybody turned to me and said, oh, yeah, that's, that's totally normal. I was like, ooh, okay. Going to learn more about what normal is here. And then learning that more broadly, you know, six to 18 months is, is, is an average turnover in so many tech firms. So there's norms that again, if you're a toad in the water and you're being boiled, you don't know. You don't know it's not normal. You don't know that some other toad is sitting in a nice, you know, a nice hot tub while you're being boiled. Um, and so it was very interesting being, uh, you know, a toad from a different pond coming into that pond and noticing, wow, everything is uh, everything is really strange here, my friends. Um, so that was just one instance of, of of seeing a different paradigm and 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 seeing exactly how that paradigm was shaped and internalized by the folks there. And then honestly, the biggest critique that I learned uh, was um, really crystallizing when I met zebras and when I met the zebras or zebras, as we like to switch it up, unite, which was the, you know, this beautiful idea was really being hamstrung by the financial model and by the assumptions underlying the financial model and who was in charge of what kind of an assumption about a return on investment and how powerful their narrative was about what they should and could expect and uh, and how much money they were actually willing to lose to not lose face 
around having that money expected to be coming in. So it was a really powerful object lesson that really brought me to Zebra's uh, front door and said, oh, yeah, y'all are critiquing this exact thing I just noticed. <laughs> let's, uh, let's talk about that. Hey, I hope you're enjoying the show. If you want to learn more about ecosystem building, hop over to socialventurers.com, where I've been sharing my insights into the field for the last two years. Every two weeks, I lovingly curate the best insights, highlights from the show, resources, and events. If you want those delivered straight to your inbox every two weeks, along with a healthy reminder that your work matters, sign up for Impact Curator. And now, back to the show. So, you're in the Silicon Valley, you're in the belly of the beast, so to speak, <laughs> undercover, which I love. Mm -hmm. And you know that even though this is a mission-driven, socially responsible startup using tech for good, it's mm -hmm. still part of a system that doesn't seem to be working for everybody. Then yeah. you meet Zebras Unite, and luckily they were smart enough to poach you as fast as they could, I think. <laughs> um, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So in what way is Zebras Unite different from you have such a fantastic insight into how the co-op came about, how it's running. Mm -hmm. Like, what is that? If we think about the typical Silicon Valley startup, how mm -hmm. is Zebras Unite different? How does it embody those values that I know you hold very true? And how can mm -hmm. a movement like Zebras Unite help us move forward? What is that? What does that vehicle look like? Mm -hmm. um, so one thing that's really powerful, you know, because I, I heard about Zebras Unite when the the article Zebras Fix What Unicorns Break really mm -hmm. sparked this this idea and this movement. I read it, you know, very soon after that. Actually, the same year that I entered Silicon Valley, I I read that and went, huh, interesting. I don't really know what it's referencing yet. And then a year and a half later, I was like, oh yeah, wow, hoo, hoo, hoo. Uh, this is uh, on point. Um, but I think that the thing that um, as a as a lifelong cooperativist and you know someone who's been helping different flavors of cooperative co-op better and, and overcome their different flavors of challenge uh, for my professional life. The thing that I noticed that is really different is that it is an inverted origin story. So Zippers Unite did not come about because, you know, four visionary founders had an idea and set out to build a company. Zippers Unite came about because four um, frustrated and disempowered founders in different companies came together around trying to analyze what the source of their disempowerment, specifically economically in this space was, because these are all, you know, four women funders, one a black woman who are not getting any traction on their genius ideas and really came together to just say, can we point out and describe the elephant in this room? We'd like to do that really quickly. And then uh, the other folks who were experiencing that as well came together and said, me too. <laughs> Plus one. I too uh, see this narrative and I further would like to add. Um, yeah. And so it's really an idea who is that is grounded very deliberately in a community of people immediately experiencing and then trying to attempt to respond now to a need. So the company in its articulation of how it has come together was actually a response to the article, a community convening around that article and that idea, and then saying, we would like actually these three things to happen to ameliorate this idea or to, to work on this. And those three things are capital, culture, and community work to actually you know, get money back to us, us companies and founders that are not, that are excluded from the VC world, which, you know, the last numbers I read for the VC world is something like, it's like 97 to 98% of the money goes to people who look like 
you know, rich, cis, het, white dudes <laughs> who are economically solvent and able-bodied. Blah, 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 blah. And it's like 2 to 3% go to people who aren't like that. It's just – that's objectively astounding. I don't care what narrative you have. That's just not a thing. Um, so, you know, people who are left out of that um, coming together. And then, then from that comes the company and comes the format of the company. Um, and they deliberately chose to, to breathe into the experimental um, new organizational form of an LCA, a limited cooperative association, which is a new format that has encapsulated um, a, 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 an economic and organizational innovation that had been growing in the cooperative world for a while, which mm -hmm. is having different flavors of stakeholder owning one company together in tandem. So the classic example where this was just stated was in food cooperatives. So you have a food cooperative, which is a purchasing cooperative, right? I purchase mm -hmm. a share of this food co-op, which means I get the right to shop there or the right to have extra discounts um, and have some say over who's the board of directors and what things we stock and if we support the grape workers strike or not, et cetera. Um, and then there's also the staff of that co-op who are, you know, stocking the shelves, running the books, all that. And that could be a worker-owned co-op where the workers, the laborers, own the means of their own labor together. And those two co-ops share, obviously, assets and yeah. organizational norms, et cetera. So now that's a multi-stakeholder co-op, which we have made into a new uh, legal form. And we are one of the first organizations who are actually taking that on and working on what that means and then uh, attempting to figure that out internally, organizationally, and uh, for our external stakeholders and our members of various flavors. So that is the real difference is the origin story of how it came into being. It's driven by the need and the community having that need rather than driven by a few folks who had an idea, sought a market for it, and then attempted to really fill that market space. Yeah. Um, and so that really just flips almost everything about operations, incentives, alignment, ownership, voice. Um, it really just flips it all on its head, which is wonderful and also extremely challenging. It's wonderful in that we know the old ways aren't working, so this is a new way. It's challenging in that a new way. Fabulous. Where's the handbook for that? Yeah. 100%. In our brains slash to be discovered. <laughs> we are writing it as we are moving into this future. So actually mm -hmm. another question I wanted to ask you, because you've worked with so many co-ops I feel mm -hmm. like this is really running through your veins and a co-op of that size and mm -hmm. a co-op that is so like making a new path for itself. is mm. also incredibly challenging because yeah. it's people. People are yeah. messy. And if you're building a move, I think building a movement is one thing. It's a great idea. It's charismatic founders and boy, are they charismatic. Mm. And there's a lot of excitement But then building that infrastructure and yeah. constantly holding the tension of this car needs to drive, but it also needs to represent our values and it needs to be mm -hmm. able to drive on different roads. It's, I feel like there's so much to keep in mind, half of which you don't even know the moment you start driving. Mm -hmm. <laughs> What are some of the challenges that you've met within Zebras Unite or your co-op work in general? What are mm. co-ops struggling with? that we should know about when we mm. look at a co-op and say, either I don't get it or it's not as good as I wanted it to be. What are some mm. of those internal challenges that are hard for co-ops? 
Mm, this is a fabulous question because it gets under the hood of things mm-hmm. that um, are are really often, and, and I'm gonna just going to put a line in the sand here and say deliberately invisibilized. Um, yeah. So I'll speak to the larger co-op context and I'll, I'll drill down into a couple of uh, very, very for me today examples from, from Zebras. Um, so the larger context is that from the inception, and I mentioned the Rochdale pioneers, from the inception of modern cooperativism, um, the Rochdale pioneers was was a, a literal response to a company town squeeze on on a couple on the the workers of a mill, a textiles mill. Um, you know, the, they lived in a company town. The company town set the rules and the rates for their food, and mm-hmm. also the rates for their wages. And they were literally being starved while giving their entire economic livelihood to this to this organization. And so they said, you know what? F you, we're going to pool our money and buy a big sack of grain and then share that out at a lower price. And from that premise grows all modern cooperativism. And so in the, as we know, you know, in any founder organization, the DNA of your founders and their, you know, benefits and, and foibles grow throughout the organization. Modern cooperativism is really a survival technique. It's really a response to our current you know, epoch's obsession with extractive capitalism from the industrial revolution and the ability to mechanize labor um, and extract accordingly and build organizational formats that are, you know, even when you're not in a manufacturing space, are still premised on that logic. That means that you don't have a lot of Fortune 500 companies. The the great holy grail exception is the Mondragon Corporation in the Basque region of Spain, which is a global Fortune 500 company and is a network of incredible cooperatives. And learning from the the founder there, Jose Maria Arias Mendiareta, whose name I love to say, um, is a, a, a giant, amazing thing that cooperativists around the world all, all deeply read into that text. And we have not replicated it. Um, mm-hmm. There was a specific, beautiful concatenation of circumstances and braveries that the people there uh, leaned into and took on. And and this is especially true in the United States, where we are especially allergic to anything that may even smack a tiny bit of quote unquote socialism. Um, and that is, in my opinion, a deliberate uh, tactic to maintain the kind of corporate oligarchy that we have as a foundation of our society here today. There have yeah. been actually like there have been academic studies. There have been, you know, McCarthyism had a strong role in smashing uh, dining cooperatives in the 50s. Like there has been a history of cooperative oppression here in the United States and of a deliberate writing out of its presence and, and strong history in the foundation and the economic fabric of this country. And so it's not learned about. It's not passed on. I literally cannot point to a business school that includes a section on cooperatives, which is nuts because globally, it's considered a pillar of third sector organizational formats. There is still federal funding for it in the United States, but a lot of the co-ops that do exist, mostly in the agriculture space or the you know horticulture space, so dairy cooperatives, grain cooperatives, they exist, but they don't call themselves co-ops because when they do, they get looked at and scrutinized weirdly because of the cultural suppression that we have. So you do see cooperatives blooming in spaces where people are already extremely marginalized and it's deliberately a survival technique. So you see things like the the network cooperation Jackson in the South of folks really coming together and the, the strong history of black cooperativism as chronicled by Dr. Jessica gordon Neimhart and others. Um, there's a wonderful book called For All the People by uh, John Curl, who's a historian of cooperativism in the United States that really just reveals um, and, 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 and shows, no, this is here, but it is a format that has been deliberately smashed in so many ways and continues to be smashed. So if you're wondering, why doesn't that co-op 
operate like any other company in their sector, well, honey, let me tell you, they're carrying a little bit of social burden and stigmatization. And there have been many attempts to market, like there was a, a in the early 2000s, there was an attempt by the National Co-op Business Association to do a, a mass marketing education campaign called Marketing Our Cooperative Advantage. That's when you saw REI, for example, REI, the uh, which is a consumer cooperative. That's when they started using the word co-op in their label. And because they are already, their demographic is open to a, a more left and or socialist idealism, they found market share that way. And so they kept doing that. But there's challenges, that, uh, like some of the main challenges that the cooperatives um, in the United States particularly face is that People don't know about it because the history has been the history of and the benefits of cooperativism have been deliberately taken from us and or associated with survival struggle. Um, and uh, the the basic benefits have been obscured. So that's the the big root cause. And then there's the fact that if you want to bring a diverse group of people together to share power, it is in fact work. And that's yeah. challenging. It can look more efficient. To just have, you know, someone set a business, make it go, do everything. But I would actually hypothesize, and this is something I have absolutely seen because I've worked with several businesses that move from a quote unquote traditional, you know, top down or command and control business with a single owner and many employees to a, for example, worker owned model. It's actually not more efficient. It's just externalizing the costs, right? Yeah. It's externalizing the the labor or the reconciliation or the implementation costs to people instead of the owner but it's so it, it, it that the where the work is is different in a co-op it's front-loaded because you have to work to come together and make your systems together but mm -hmm. then the implementation actually is often easier and more efficient and more effective um they're often a byproduct of good operations rather than something you have to have a specific program or intention to do well yeah. um so that's some of the main challenges i see in the cooperative model is they know they're not going to look as shiny or fancy as the default culture norm because they're doing a lot of extra stuff with less resources. So the fact that they are doing so well, for example, cooperative businesses are about 35%. Um, I remember that the latest data was in a, in, a, in a time of economic instability. And we saw this again in the pandemic. Co-op small businesses, co-op owned or operated small businesses are roughly that they're like a 35% um, success rate compared to other small businesses in their mm -hmm. same industry or category, which is like a 15% success rate. So they're more resilient despite all the challenges I just outlined. And I think challenges particularly that are showing up in Zebras Unite is we're still building and we're still growing. And what we're yeah. in the phase right now is that front-loaded build yourself internally phase. So those mm -hmm. are the challenges we're facing right now is what does it mean to come together with shared voice? What does it mean to build products that reflect our members' needs and being sensitive to differences in race that mean differences in time availability and emotional labor and all of those things trying to do right in tandem and in parallel rather than in series is just a lot. It's like all the normal startup costs of an organization plus the added benefit of trying to unlearn old habits, relearn new ones, and then write a template so the people behind us can actually do it well <laughs> because there's no handbook for us. Um, so it's it that's the, the crucial challenge is really putting together a new way of being, doing it, testing and implementing and iterating on it while still also trying to meet the needs of our members and of our mission. Um, so it's, you know, laid out like that. It would be a little weird if we weren't having challenges. <laughs> No, of course. Yeah. 
Um, but nonetheless, it feels internally like a big challenge. And that can feel really demoralizing because you feel like, well, it's not going well. Actually, no, this is just what it feels like to literally push the boulder uphill. So that's something that's very up for me today is reminding myself something I often tell my clients, which is, does it feel hard or challenging? Congratulations. You have an accurate perception of reality. It is, in fact, a challenge. Yeah. So. <laughs> well, I'm, and I'm so glad you talked about this sort of front-loading a lot of the work because mm. if you're building a co-op that, you know, brings in so many people with very different lived experiences, with very mm. different backgrounds, and you're trying to... I don't want to say accommodate, but make mm. sure everybody's heard. Everybody mm. gets to have a say. That mutualistic decision-making mm. is incredibly hard and mm -hmm. uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. And I just want to run the other way, which is why mm. it's so perfect that people like you exist, Sassy, because you're like, ooh, I love difficult conversations. That's my favorite thing. <laughs> and I'm like, thank God Sassy's here because... I, it really drives me crazy. I, yeah. yeah, but it's this, like you said, it's you're building something new under extremely different circumstances. It's just going to take longer time. But that also means that Zebras Unite has values built in. It's not something that yeah. they're going to have to give a workshop on and hope and keep their fingers crossed that everybody who works there will remember those four values, which yeah. I think a lot of the other companies where you have one founder who makes all of the decisions and then starts putting people in place to follow mm -hmm. him or her mm -hmm. will face before long. So thank you yeah. for giving us a look under the hood of how really messy and mm -hmm. complex and hard that work is and yet how yeah. rewarding. Mm. Yeah, I'd say double plus to both of that is incredibly complex and challenging and real. And as Mata once said uh, early on when I met her, she didn't realize that co-op work was inner work, but a hundred percent it is. And that is actually why I think it is. Um, I think it's the right thing to go back to our, our, what would you, what lever would you pull? Mm -hmm. The byproducts of living and breathing into a cooperativist form of economic organizing livelihood or any kind of cooperativist form, whatever pillar that is in your life, the byproducts of that are that you have to face the mirror. You have to work on your stuff. You have to define the shape of your unique way of being yeah. and, um, and how to come and how to make space for other unique ways of being without diminishing either of your light and that work That work, the byproducts of that work are that you are a better citizen. You are a better person to be in relationship with uh, in your family and in your friends. It is just, it's just so synergistic. You know, as I mentioned, I live in an interracial relationship in which I do a lot of work to not be spewing white supremacy all over my partner and her family, et cetera. And <laughs> the fact that I have to deal with this at work and at home means that I am really well tooled up to do yeah. that as a not as an extra class I took not as an extra book I had to read as a byproduct of doing my work well I am tooled up to be a good person in the world and a great citizen and that feels like a good idea to me I don't know about y'all but that feels like the right thing to be spending my limited time on this earth this time around on <laughs> so yeah. yes and mm -hmm. what is occurring to me when you talk about inner work and this is really really important is We could just go on with the old ways, colonial mm -hmm. views and white supremacy and say, and now we're just going to do a co-op with mm -hmm. people who look like us and talk like us. And we can, mm -hmm. we can totally use that model and just put it into place with what we've been having. But the yep. difference you're making mm -hmm. is no, 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 no. This is not 
like capitalism, it is a tool that can be used for that, but that's a very mm -hmm. limited use. If you really want to change it, that change mm -hmm. starts with you. That change starts with you being willing to open your eyes to other lived experiences. It's you yes. being willing to accept your privilege and learning and making yourself vulnerable. And just for, for people who don't know this, um, I think that the core of Zebras Unite, people mm -hmm. who are currently working, actively working on building this organization is, I don't know how many people you all are now, but it's across several time zones, continents, mm -hmm. different races, different religions, mm -hmm. it, as different as it can be. Mm -hmm. And that's really just the core. And so that's yeah. representative of the wider community of all the chapters around the world. So just mm -hmm. finding consensus among people who bring so much diversity in every sense of the word is an mm -hmm. incredibly hard and messy process. So I'm not surprised that not more people jump on there. I'm a little concerned, Cersei. We're talking so real about co-ops that no one who's listening will ever want to be part of a co-op because it is, it takes so much inner work. But the payoff, friends, don't be discouraged. Yeah. It's yeah. worth it. The payoff is huge. Like the payoff is you know, I was just talking with a friend of mine this morning who has, you know, is a an uh, economically privileged white queer woman who has worked primarily in the, you know, the, the California left coast startup space um, and who just took a new job as a, an operations manager at a new, um, you know, queer owned cooperativistly cultured company. And it, my, my texts this morning is full of crying and joyful emojis, basically saying, I literally did not know Mm -hmm. how much time and energy and soul was being sucked out of me by being in these spaces because I had not experienced being celebrated for my whole self, being given agency and power over my own autonomy and like the ability to work with and respect other people who are having the same. It's a quality of life and livelihood difference that is unfortunately, again, if you don't know it, you can't know what you don't know. And I'll just share that like – I I managed to s survive economically in the Bay Area for several years on something like fifteen to twenty thousand dollars a year when I was really starting my business, and I joyfully chose to do that because the quality of life I got in return by working for and with cooperatives was huge, huge. I I felt my power. I I said this often. We say this inside inside Zebras Unite. We don't pay much patriarchy debt here. Right. Because there's the, the, the energy and the time that I am liberate, that is liberated in myself and in my soul and in literally my schedule by not having to deal with any of the nonsense and having time just for the real work is yeah. immeasurable. It is, it is really incredible. And again, as you pointed out, that's not every co-op, right? That's not every cooperative experience. I want to really, really like bring into the room that if you have a, like there are dysfunctional cooperatives, like there are dysfunctional humans of all stripes. Even the most functional co collectively owned or organized group sometimes is going to be a mess because yeah. we're humans. The thing I don't want us to do is throw us throw any babies out with the bathwater because I want you to compare how often is an analogous organizational kind of format uh, or analogous organization in a, in a, a same sector, same kind of thing, but mm -hmm. a not cooperatively organized. How often are they dysfunctional? How often, how, like how much energy are they wasting? Yeah. compared to this one. And if you really run that comparison, co-ops are almost always a little better 
depending on what you're what you're looking at. So I want to really like, yes, it's hard, but that's because I'm actually just really giving you real talk and I'm not talking, you know, not there's no smoke screens here. <laughs> yeah. Um, because that's I love informed consent. And for me, that's part of it. But yeah, no, it it's still like it's a lot of work. And it's absolutely the work that we all should and need to be doing in order to, to be living right in the world and be leaving a world for those who come after us that will, you know, be right and be in existence. So. Sassy, for the few people we haven't scared off yet, for the, for the <laughs> hopefully many people who say, oh, that sounds like I want to be empowered. I would rather mm -hmm. work in a place that is representative of all of our opinions and views and life experiences. Mm -hmm. What is a good way to start thinking more in this mutualistic worldview, in this cooperative mm -hmm. approach to society, to functioning as a society? How can our listeners take the first step? Um, so the first step is always to educate yourself um, and to look to what's out there in the world um, doing what these folks are doing. So I mentioned a couple of different historical texts already that are great books to pick up if you're of that bent. Um, there's also an amazing the stewards of the internationally held cooperative principles that undergo revision every 35-ish years is the ICA, the International Cooperative Alliance. So mm -hmm. ICA.coop is a lot of great resources on like the the identity statement and the basic principles that organize all co-ops. So first off, you know, take a look at that world and then take a look around you. Like where are the organizations, the groups of people that are coming together in some sort of shared way, some sort of co-owned or co-governed way? That may be a neighborhood association. That may be your local Food Not Bombs chapter. That may be uh, your chamber of commerce. If it's actually, you know, there are some that are cooperatively owned and run. If you're in a rural mm -hmm. environment, Look to your local, you know, agricultural cooperatives. Look to your shared rural electric electrician cooperatives. You know, look at the broadband collectives that are springing up. Just go and take a look. Read the meeting minutes. They're all public. Um, take a look at what's actually happening and get curious about what the diversity of cooperative forms are out there. If you're really interested in kind of taking a look under the hood, uh, in California, at least, there is a a wonderful organization called the California Center for Cooperative Development. They bring together a conference every year of deliberately multi-stakeholder co-ops. So they're like housing co-ops, worker co-ops, multi-stakeholder co-ops, ag co-ops, like bring them all in. The thing we have in common is we do our thing cooperatively. Let's talk about the shared challenges there and the shared opportunities. So I would say just start dipping your toe into this world And hopefully two things will come of that for you. One, it will be revealed to you just how deep and broad the cooperative landscape is around you, even if it is not named thusly. You'll notice that, like, for example, every credit union is a co-op. That's a thing. Everyone. So you might even be a member of a co-op already. You don't know it. Yeah. So go look at their bylaws. Go look at what they do. What does it mean that you're a member of that? Well, how does that actually look to you? If you're a member of REI or other consumer co-ops and you get that you know postcard in the mail once a year that says, hey, vote for the board of directors, actually vote. Turn up to the meeting and see what they're saying for themselves. See, you know, you have that power. Take it. Um, and the second thing I hope that comes out of that is it may inspire you to say, well, here's, you know, this aspect of my life where I have some control. And what if I suggested to the people I share that with that we just be a little more deliberate about that, right? You know, maybe I'm a part of my neighborhood association. What if I suggested to us that we started rotating the facilitation of those meetings, Yeah. You know, or what if I suggested that we we put together like a, a potluck where we all shared the food occasionally um, and maybe made jam from each other's fruit trees once a year and then shared that in our neighborhood in a collective manner. Right. So 
look for a way where you can just start to experiment or dip into cooperativism in whatever flavor it looks like. You know, I'm actually personally co-op agnostic. I don't think there is a right way to do it. I just think that doing it in some way is the right thing. Um, and so look for a way to just weave that into your life and then notice the challenges and the benefits for yourself. I really like everything you just said because it really brings home the point that I think in the current not ideal system, mm. we've been so trained to look to our leaders mm -hmm. to create change. We've been so trained to assume, well, there's nothing I can do about X, Y, and Z. So we'll bitch and moan and complain about how our leaders are not addressing challenges fast enough. But what you're saying by becoming an active member, we're taking back some of that power. And instead mm -hmm. of waiting for our leaders to fix problems and change the world in a way that we want to see changed, we can claim that power for ourselves and say, I'm not mm -hmm. waiting for anyone to give me permission anymore. I'm going to go mm -hmm. become active. I will own that process. I will bring others along and I'm going to go create that change. I'm tired of waiting on politicians and presidents and maybe even CEOs to create whatever change I want to see. Mm -hmm. <sighs> yeah, if you got a fence, you got some boxes, make a free store, you know, <laughs> just like, sassy. like for there you. you. <laughs> <laughs> uh -huh. um, Sassy, I want to change direction a little bit. We've talked about some really big and heavy questions. Yeah. How do you make sure that doesn't overwhelm you? How do mm. you, how do you go to sleep at night? So important. Um, yeah, this is a big one. I, you know, I'm mostly like 90% happily cisgendered women. So I carry the gendering of that in my current moment, which is, you know, got to please everybody, got to work on everybody, only worth it if you're working on saving the world. Yeah. Um, so I have a couple of practices that I use to kind of let that down um, and let that, you know, take it out of my body. Um, one is um, I do a lot of walking. I do a lot of like, that's my moving meditation. That's how my body works. I also do you know some light yoga that I've been doing my whole life. So I have a, a particular physical practice that works for me that I try and do always before and after stewarding a really heavy conversation and mm -hmm. um, as a kind of a sprinkling throughout my day. So one thing I do is I have standing blocks on all of on my calendar for all weekdays, which is um, three days a week, I block out an hour and a half of time to just center my body. And I, you know, mm -hmm. to try and stick to respecting that to, to really make sure that I'm, I'm in this for the long haul. So that's, you know, that's, a, I have a physical practice around that. Um, and then I have a, you know, a couple of mental tools. One is um, I was raised on science fiction. And so I love me some sci-fi. Um, the, I won't say escapism because sometimes it is, sometimes I just need out and it's a really easy way to get out, but it's also like a journey that you can go on into other worlds and into, the world in which um, it still feels like, oh, you know, I'm reading this author that just changed one variable and then ran the experiment to see how humanity would do. Yeah. Um, and so that still feels like it's like the work enough to satisfy the part of me that feels like I have to be working to be worthy, but it's actually really rejuvenating mm -hmm. um, because I'm, you know, taking a journey through someone else's art um, and I'm able to leave behind anything else that that wasn't there. So a, a lot of my approaches are about that bridging. It's like not denying the trauma and the shaping that I'm carrying because that in itself is labor, but like channeling it or shifting it into something that also fills my cup. Thank you for saying that because I've been describing books as my guilty pleasure, mm. but I have just genuinely enjoyed over the last few years, mm -hmm. turning off reality for some time and yeah. immersing myself in someone else's experience or life yeah. or 
you know, um, mm -hmm. fiction, science fiction, nonfiction, it doesn't matter. It just has yeah. to be something that pulls me out of my own brain and away from the news channels yeah. and just allows that, that child in me or that creative part of me to just mm -hmm. run free for a little bit. And I find mm -hmm. that gives me a lot of energy, especially towards the end of the day when I need to come down and can't think about all that's wrong in the world. Mm -hmm. So thank you. Yes. I'm not the only one. I feel yeah. I feel validated. Thank you. Amen. That's what we're here for. Amen. We're all here to see each other in each other's eyes. Mm -hmm. So I'm hearing uh, science fiction books, mm -hmm. physical practice. Mm -hmm. What else needs to be in place to make sure that you can continue to do this work for decades to come? Um, I think the biggest other thing there besides like a baseline of stability that, you know, I need to assemble, which um, is fairly ironic because I mentioned I have a sustainability degree. I definitely learned a lot about climate change. Um, and so I have a scientific grounding in the increasing instability that is coming in our giant system. And so it's both ironic that uh, that is necessary and will be increasingly hard to ground in and is therefore increasingly necessary. So stability is a huge thing. Um, and that can look a lot of different ways. You know, when I'm really out of control, like, you know, I've been in situations in the past, um, you know, I'll just, I'll, I'll share that during the pandemic, there was at least eight months there where the global pandemic and economic crisis was at least the third crisis down on my personal list, um, mm -hmm. which will give you some idea of, of the instability I've been carrying for the last few years. Even in those times, carving out small nuggets of, stability and in through through comradeship is really the the key one I'll leave with y'all is even in the times where it is really legitimately dark and traumatic you know having an evening where i had dinner with a friend with nice music playing or with a shared crafting project or playing a board game or you know something that was calming to my nervous system and just an island of here in this moment, all is good and all is shared and we got you and I got you and you got me. Spreading little islands of that through your life so that you can kind yeah. of hop from island to island, even as you hold and clench and and and, and grit through um, those islands are crucial because I have, in fact, burned my body and psyche out before. I do not recommend it. It does not empower you to get up and do the work again tomorrow. Yeah, um, and I agree. So, uh, for me, spreading little tiny anchors throughout my life. Um, and they're always, they always, for me, involve other people. That's how my brain works. That's how my psyche works. So I've got like a small group of humans that I consider anchors that I know if I'm like, hey, I, I just I just need to play a board game with you and talk about nothing <laughs> for an hour. They'd be like, yeah, sure. How about Tuesday? Perfect. Um, <laughs> I'm so glad to hear that you have a group of people that mm -hmm. will show up for you and mm -hmm. and provide those islands of safety sanity and <laughs> a security blanket for when you need mm. it that's wonderful sassy yes. before we get to the last part of this lovely conversation that i wish would never end i do want our listeners to know that they can find you at sassycooperates.org they can connect with you on facebook uh, if they're curious about co-ops there's a lot of information that i put in the show notes and of course they can always check out zebras unite so for my last Final questions that I lovingly call the rapid fire round. I will give you the beginning of a sentence and ask you to finish it for me. Are you ready? Yes, I am ready. Fantastic. Systems thinking is necessary and insufficient. A systems <laughs> thinker everyone should know about is. Ooh. 
N.K. Jemison, the science fiction author, because she's weaving deep and ancient wisdom plus really audacious thinking into her books as subtext. Outstanding. Thank you. One resource that you would recommend to other people who are new to this way of thinking, it could be systems, it could be co-ops. What is that one piece that everybody should have? Mm, oh, goodness. So many. Either The Sharing Solution, which is a no-low press book authored by Janelle Orsi, which is a concrete nuts and bolts DIY legal guide for building your own stuff, or The Culture Map, which is the latest book I read on how to actually operationalize intercultural decision-making in a real and mappable way. All right. Sassy, wonderful. Thank you for spending so much time with us today, sharing your genius, your wisdom, your experiences. I can't wait to have you back on the show and talk a little bit more. But for now, yeah. thank you for being here. So good to see you. Yes, thank you for this. Thank you for holding this space. And thank you to everybody who stuck with us on this journey of realness <laughs> and aspiration and concreteness. So it's been an absolute pleasure. Be sure to find out more about Sassy at sassycooperates.org and connect with her on Facebook. Before we finish up today, I want to pay my respect to the traditional custodians of the land on which I work and live, the Tuscarora, Shakori, Saponi, Okanichi, Lumbi, and Ino people. I recognize their continuing connection to land, water, and community. I pay respect to elders past, present, and emerging. This episode was produced by Yellow House Media.